Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the magical films of the VHS era. Tonight, we're talking about, amazingly, our first Herschel Gordon Lewis film, 1970s The Wizard of Gore. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, you can find 1970s The Wizard of Gore on YouTube if you if you really want to. It's there. Was this your first Herschel Gordon Lewis movie? I don't know who that man be, but yes, I'm assuming this is this is my first Gordon Lewis film. H.G. Lewis started in advertising, I think, and then sort of fell into the the world of filmmaking. And he directed a series of kind of soft core sex comedy, um, you know, exploitation fair, but not horror. And he got the idea to make like the equivalent of a pornographic film, but with gore. And he thought that there, this was a niche that no one else was doing and they weren't. And so he made Blood Feast, which was advertised as the first gore movie. And then he made a whole series of these films, right, just centered around the gore effects. And so whether you like his films or hate his films, whether you think he's talented or not, he is responsible for introducing like graphic violence and gore two movies um it is it is his invention so i think we all owe him um at least in the in the world of people who like these sorts of movies we owe him a debt of gratitude and blood feast came out in 1963 yeah so that is that was the start that was the start i think my favorite one is the Gore Gore Girls. My least favorite one is uh, 2000 Maniacs. Uh, some people really oh, like that film. I've seen 2000 Maniacs. Have you? Okay. No. You you can't tell it's the same director? No. That, no. <laughs> Not at all. Because there was like a, I don't know if there was a remake of, of 2000 Maniacs. I know there was a 2001 Maniacs with Robert England in it. I think that is the remake. Okay. So, but you've seen the the one from like 1964 or something. Yeah. So I, I saw the original, the 2000 Maniacs. The remake is 2001 Maniacs, which dropped in 2005. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. But uh, no, I'm not a fan of that one. This one, The Wizard of Gore and Color Me Blood Red, I think are the two weirdest ones. Um, and it they're, they're strange because they're sort of supernatural or hypnotic or whatever you want to call it, elements. Or in the case of Color Me Blood Red, there's a... It just feels more perverse. Although with all of his films, they're so low budget, it they feel grimy, right? Like if any films we've covered are drive-in movies or grindhouse movies, it's this. So do you think you want to watch more H.G. Lewis after this? I'd be willing to give this man another chance, but 
this movie leaves a lot to be desired and perhaps that's because this was the first of its kind well it was also i mean it was shot with sixty thousand dollars herschel gordon lewis directed produced and composed the music for it um so it was a very like these weren't the most skilled practitioners of the the film arts right they were just doing the best they could yeah maybe not but like also consider if if this was the first of you know any gore movie ever right well i would say blood feast is that oh that's right fuck never mind my point my point was rendered mute oh okay <laughs> whoops i was going to try to defend this movie <laughs> whoops <laughs> that was my mistake <laughs> well i mean even it may not have been the first of of his gore films but i think it was still a pretty innovative concept at that time like there wasn't nobody was doing what he was doing in terms of pushing the envelope do you think this film is trying to be meta like as a critique of the the kind of audience that would be drawn to a film of just this absolutely grotesque you know scene of violence after violence yes i do okay i think that's intentional did you yeah well i didn't know if it was intentional but that was what i got from it that that was the primary that's the primary takeaway is i yeah. feel like this is ridiculing the kind of audience that would be drawn to watch this kind of film Maybe at this point he was disgusted at making gore films. He wanted to do something else. And this was his fuck you letter to the to the fan base. I, I'm sure we have listeners who know more about H.G. Lewis than me. and uh, But I seem to remember reading something to that effect. I could be totally wrong, though. So uh, this is a guy. There are books out there about him. There are documentaries. There are. I'm sure like featurettes on DVDs. If you want to learn about HG Lewis, there's so much stuff. This isn't the the podcast episode to do that. We're we're just gonna talk about Wizard of Gore. <laughs> yes. Yes, sorry. This isn't like fall of civilizations where like we take three months to research a topic before dropping an ep on it. No, we don't know shit. Like we're just doing the best we can with a short amount of time. But um he was a Florida guy, we should note. Does does he seem like a Florida guy? You mean he like retired and passed away in Florida? I think he was originally from Florida. Internet says no. Where was he from? Pennsylvania. Okay, I see on IMDb he was born in Pittsburgh, but he died in Fort Lauderdale. But I think uh, he made his movies in Florida is what I'm thinking of. I mean, there's a sizable uh, chunk of the American population that if if you make it to that age, that 80, 90 range with money, you move down here to die. Yeah, no, I think he made films down there. Um, I think this film was shot down there. I could be wrong, but I seem to remember reading that. <laughs> okay. Maybe we can look that up. <laughs> According to IMDb, the logo on the side of the television camera in the movie is a local television station in Rockford, Illinois. So 
perhaps it was filmed there. Yeah, no, I don't think any. I don't think there's anything Florida about this film. The remake is the easiest thing to find information on. Uh, there was a remake done in 2007 with Crispin Glover as the wizard. Who, who wanted to remake this? I somebody did. Oh well, we don't know where it was filmed. It's not Florida. It's not Florida. It, was, it literally said local cameras from Illinois. So let's we've talked enough about Lewis. Let's talk about some of the the other people involved here. Uh, so the the main star of the movie, or arguably the star, is the guy who plays Montauk, the magician, and his name is Ray Sager. He was not an actor. He was a producer who was working on the film. And when their actor dropped out, like the day before shooting was supposed to start, he stepped in to fill the role. He said his name was Montag. Pretty sure it's Montag. Either way. No, it's very important because Montag. Well, okay. Wait it's important because Montag sounds like the name of a magician, but it's Montag. Sounds like a fucking dishwasher appliance. Well, perhaps I'm being charitable uh, then in saying Montag. <laughs> but how would you think? Absolutely of- admirable that this this producer stepped up, and yeah. uh, I, I think he did a great job. Yeah, you liked his performance. I think he's the best performance by a long shot in this entire film. Well, he's kind of the only performance. Like I agree. <laughs> Everyone else just sort of walked in front of a camera and said some yeah. lines. Or or is literally supposed to be in a hypnotized daze. You get a lot of that. Like people just staring blankly. Oh, actually, you know what? You do get a lot of convincing, like writhing women in pain and agony as they are slowly tortured to death. <laughs> Which is all that matters, right? When I said earlier that this is like the drive-in movie of what we've covered, it's because there's almost no story. It's just a a sequence of gore scenes that are bad, by the way, but they were innovative, strung together by very little plot, and it was su- totally supposed to be something you made out in the car during and you looked up now and then so your girlfriend could get scared and then you went back to making out. I oh, think hey babe, look at that esophagus. <laughs> <laughs> well, people people flock to these movies. They I mean, it, you don't have to sell many tickets to make a profit on $60,000, but these movies were profitable. That's why he was able to make so many. So to to be fair, I think the gore for the time was probably very well done. It and like you said, it was innovative for the time. It just didn't age well, and I think that's partly because of um, if if you watch this film with any sort of updated high def remaster, a lot of the like fake head skin all that stuff really stands out yeah it doesn't look good it's um for it, the it, wait yo it would have looked good in the 60 or it would look good in like 1970 though well 
you know, we think that, but then, all right. So the, the film we've covered that I think has the best gore effects was beyond the darkness. And that was made in 1979. So just nine years later, that doesn't seem like a huge difference in terms of like technology or anything. No, I I think that's a huge amount of time, especially in like a field that wasn't very developed. You know, when you have any sort of um, like skill or mastery or developing like hobby or whatever you know the largest jumps in development are always in the beginning like you start like yeah or any sort of like technology the biggest jumps always are in the beginning and then as it becomes more developed then it's harder to, to find ways to improve it so like if this was the if if this guy was like one of the first dudes to be developing gore films right and he started in like i don't know the the but 1963 is that what we said? Yeah, something like that. Right. Uh, you know, this film came out seven years later, probably drastically better than the than the stuff he started out with, and then just add like another nine years. What? Nine, yeah, like another nine years. Yeah, no, I could see it. Well, how about um, we covered the two Andy Warhol films, Dracula and Frankenstein. Those came out in 1974. I think the gore effects in those are also outstanding. Like four years later. Yeah, I'm not. I I, I, I said it from the very beginning. Like, I think he, Herschel Gordon Lewis's contribution is very important. Um, I'm just saying that if he had have had a slightly higher budget or perhaps slightly more creativity, um, he may have made a better product at this time because I think there were other people who were doing similar things far better just a couple years down the line. So here's the thing, and we're getting dangerously close to, you know, spoiler territory. This, this entire movie really just feels like a special effects exhibition. And then everything else is just inconsequential. Except maybe the very end, which was just there to piss you off. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about the ending. Um, but anyway, let's get... Uh, oh, speaking of the... Before we move on from the special effects... Um, I wanted to mention that uh, this is on Wikipedia. Um, according to Daniel Krogh, who wrote the book, The Amazing Herschel Gordon Lewis, uh, he says the film's graphic gore effects were accomplished with two sheep carcasses. The carcasses, which had to be carried around for more than two weeks while the film was being shot, were soaked in pine saw. Krogh also describes how the chainsaw sequences were filmed. Two women, one whose upper body was exposed and another whose legs were exposed, played the single victim. A fake midsection was filled with animal organs, mortician's wax, and condoms full of stage blood that was placed between the two women. So, I thought that was interesting. Same two sheep carcasses. Yeah. Repulsive, but absolutely, yeah. 
I've heard of other film sets doing similar things, you know, in this time period with these kinds of budgets. Pine Saul. But yeah, I truly believe up until Herschel Gordon Lewis, like there was nobody who thought that there would be an audience for this. Like you had some underground films that were, you know, playing around with violence or exploitation, but nobody else was using sheep organs to like simulate uh, um, organs, except for, um, I guess, George Romero in Night of the Living Dead. And that, which was also, I think, a huge impact on like gore in movies. When did Italy start their infamous like early Italian horror films? Mm, let's see. When did Bay of Blood came out? Bay of Blood came out in 1971. Um, that is another movie that has pretty astounding like makeup and gore effects for its time. Um, it. Sometimes it's considered the first slasher movie as like, you know, sparking the wave of um, for certain giallo films. It's really the first giallo film. I think I think we've seen like three three movies for this show so far that have claimed to be the first slasher. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> it it is a it is a much much lusted after title. All right, so this guy started it, and then. Italy picked up on it is that what is that what I'm getting or is this like completely also developed in isolation I could be totally wrong but I think Italy was far more influenced by the George Romero films I think I think they had a much bigger impact and um also I'm sure John Carpenter films were um and James Cameron for that matter I mean the the Italians were really like they weren't shy about the fact that they were ripping off Americans and imitating what Americans were doing. So they might have stolen from Herschel Gordon Lewis. I have no idea. Anyway, anything else we should talk about before we play the trailer? No, I think we're good. All right, let's play the trailer uh, and then we'll talk about the story. We're about to show you a few scenes of this movie, which is called The Wizard of Gore. For those of you who appreciate this type of cinematic art, you will see the most startling scenes of their type ever filmed. But for those of you with heart conditions or who are with young and impressionable children, we ask that you turn around in your seats or leave this auditorium for the next two minutes. Thank you. <laughs> of illusion. Your eyes may see, but your mind may refuse to believe. Permit me to show you a few of the tricks I perform in the Wizard of Gore.
my good friends. Perhaps you think I excuse myself from those activities you've just seen. No. You see, I'm not afraid to stick my neck out. of all time, The Wizard of Gore. This film will take its place in motion picture history as a milestone of extraordinary achievement. Never before have the weird, the eerie, the astonishing, the bewildering been shown in so stunning a film. Behind the facade of a normal world lies another world whose grisly mystery brings panic to some, satisfaction to others. An astounding achievement in bizarre, amazing theater, The Wizard of Gore. So that's Herschel Gordon-Lewis doing the voiceover on the trailer. Well, um, I, I was low-key worried that that trailer was going to be like two and a half minutes of women screaming. So, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty abrasive at moments. <laughs> but you can see how I think you can see how a trailer like that during the time period would have gotten people to come if only to see something they hadn't seen before oh yeah sure people like being disgusted they like yeah. having the boundaries pushed when, when yeah. it comes to being exposed to media yep and or I should say there's enough of the population that that appreciates that sort of thing it's the curiosity, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. And I think wanting to push the boundary or see the boundary pushed is part of it. I think that there would come a time, especially in the Italian films, um, like Argento and Fulci in particular, where gore started to become beautiful where directors and cinematographers figured out how to display it in ways that were really artful and striking. Um, and this was before that. And they didn't have the budget or, I think, ability to conceive of it that way. They just want to be messy and gross. But anyway, let's talk about our characters. Um, we already talked about Montag. Um, our other main characters are a couple, Jack and Sherry. Should it be Sherry and Jack, like in order of importance? You think Sherry is more important? Yes. Okay. Well, I didn't think it mattered. I uh, I said them alphabetically. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, um, so uh, our couple Jack, uh, Jack and Sherry might be the most boring characters. Uh, this side of um, what's that movie we did with horrible? characters like this that doesn't narrow it down at all um <laughs> what was the movie that was paired with the executioner part two? Oh, frozen scream yeah it reminds me of the performances in frozen scream well it the characters in frozen scream felt like they might not have been awake when filming 
this movie feels like everyone was awake, but just didn't know how to inflect the believable feelings. Not so much Sherry. I think Sherry's actress does okay with what she's given, but her her boyfriend, uh, very <laughs> unconvincing. <laughs> they are like they're what I would imagine if you could peel a comic book character like uh, right off the page, two dimensional, and then bring them to life. This that would be these people with the same voices and hairstyles and everything. Oh. It's all. It's all so cardboard, so two dimensional. It's and and all of Herschel Gordon Lewis's movies are acted this way. By the way, there's no. yeah, all they are, they are. There's usually a villain who's really over the top, like Montag is here. Um, but then your protagonists are like really boring cardboard people. So is this by design? I think he just didn't give much thought to it or attention to it. I doubt they shot things with like multiple takes oh, or had maybe, a professional editor. Oh, maybe there's some sort of like David Mamet brilliance here that we just missed out on. Like there's a very important reason for his protagonists to be absolutely stale. I think if there was a very important reason, the only way that would matter is if that that reason affected us as viewers. Like, I I like David Mamet. I find his dialogue delivery system to be um, really interesting and and intriguing and sort of hypnotic. Uh, but I can totally understand someone who would hate it. And <laughs> uh, you know, it's very subjective in that in that way. Oh, oh, he is so terrible, Jack. Yeah, Jack. Yeah, Jack's bad. All of his dialogue delivery is so bad. I mean, I'm I'm I try not to be too much of a downer when when we record when when we're criticizing like people, but it, it's like middle school drama production line delivery. Yeah, it 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 makes the movie feel older than it actually is. Um because it's very much it very much reminds me of like early oh. Oh, you're so right. Like, leave it to Beaver acting. Yeah, like early TV acting. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah, that's spot on. This dude is Beaver. But also, so, what is his name? Jack? Jack is played by Wayne Rattay, who never acted in anything else. So, he probably, <laughs> maybe he didn't even want to be an actor. We really don't know. Was he also a producer that just happened to walk up into the onto the set? I don't know. According to IMDb, he produced one movie in 2003. But other than that, those are his only two credits. While you have it up, what did he produce? In 2003, he produced something called One of Them. It's a some sort of independent horror movie. Sounds kind of cool. Early 2000s horror is uh I was going to say hit or miss, but it's usually like wide range of misses. Yeah, it's pretty rough. I mean, I know I know that um, there are people who like it. And if you do, if that's your thing, like, that's awesome. Um, but I, I don't get it. Uh, that the whole period that lasted from like Scream until the end of the Saw Hostel movies I don't like anything in that gap. 
Mm. In America, at least, there are some like Guillermo del Toro's uh, early horror movies, for example, are absolutely fantastic. Um, so there were exceptions. But what most of horror was doing post Scream and then post Saw, it just wasn't for me. Saw still upsets me because that guy, like you're supposed to believe that that guy was sitting motionless on a bathroom floor for like an hour, 40 minutes yeah <laughs> now without either character recognizing this man was alive it didn't work for you no that that super missed i hated that ending <laughs> but it might have been better than the the way wizard of gore ended oh yeah the ending to this film is awful but let's let's hold off on that for for just a moment i want to talk about these these shows that they do so basically the the structure of this movie is that Jack and Sherry go to several of Montag's nightly performances. And so each night he puts on a magic show and it starts with some like, you know, traditional, really cheesy uh, gags that or tricks that everyone is kind of familiar with. And then he calls for a, a volunteer from the audience and Whoever it is, always a woman, he tortures them in some way. Like he saws one in half and he presses a big like hole press through another one. And then at that point, right, what is the audience seeing? Is the audience seeing all the gore? Presumably they're seeing all of the gore. Yet when we are treated to these scenes, it alternates between a non-gorified version along with all the, you know, viscera and blood and organs are pulling out of the volunteer. So my interpretation is that the audience does not see the gore. And the reason that's my interpretation is I think that they see the visions they show us of like the non-gory sites. And if all of the gore and the viscera were visible to everyone, there's no way they would invite him to do this on TV. Right. Like, but if it looks like the non-gore version where like the saw is just going through the middle or the saw is, or the, the sword is just going down the throat and it's all clean and there's no blood, then, yeah, we could have him on TV. You know, we kind of jumped straight into him torturing women when the opening scene has him performing this this trick on himself. Yeah, which is a very strange. It's a very strange opening. Um, it's it's actually I think it's a great attention grabber. Um, probably one of the, the best things about the film, where you know he comes out on stage, he introduces himself, and then he decides to put himself into a giant guillotine and uh, cut his own head off. But you know what's funny about all these deft instruments that he brings on stage is that they all have like the magical, like whimsical. Uh, magician sheen on them with the little fake star stickers. <laughs> yeah, or the um, like brightly painted edges and things. But if the audience is not seeing actual gore, 
what the fuck are they seeing for this? For this guillotine scene? I don't know. That's a good question. Because in that scene, does it it doesn't show us a non-gory vision in that scene, does it? It's not. No. The he sets himself up in the guillotine, the blade comes down, his head falls into a basket, and then he he reaches around, his body reaches around with an arm to dump the basket, displaying the head for the live studio audience. I, I almost it is a it is a fake ass head too, but you know, oh, it looks horrible. It looks horrible. Paper mache eyes, probably. I, I almost just want to say that that opening scene isn't canon because it's it's at no other point in the movie do we get do we get the um indication that he has the power to heal himself or to trick his own death. Or to like reattach his head. He never repeats that act. And and he never in in every other death scene, it does show us a a trio of different visuals, like a a, a clean one, a really gory one, and then like normal, unharmed one. And in that opening scene, it doesn't. So uh, maybe it's just uh, like a teaser, you know, and we shouldn't take it seriously. Can like it? It's not canon. Like it's not part of the greater Wizard of Gore universe. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I I don't know about that. I I think the more logical explanation is that um, there is no elaboration or really a description of this man's powers at any point in the film um probably on purpose by design and so we can't really make the determination on whether or not he can bring himself back to life or repair himself or really we don't know the extent of his powers we don't know yeah he may or may not even have powers i think the only power he, he may not exist like within the context of the film he asked several times, like, how do you know you're not dreaming, um, you know, to the audience? So who knows? The, the, the mission of this movie is to help us question reality. Yeah, the smash stick is that he, uh... man, this guy comes off as a total blowhard, right? Oh, it's awful. Yeah, it's awful. Very, very patronizing to the like, audience. No one would want to go see his show. No, not at all. <laughs> Especially if they're not actually seeing the gore, right? Right. I if you know, if they are seeing the gore, I just don't understand why the the non-gory images are there, and I also don't understand how afterwards, like after the the deed has been done, they're not all bloody. You mean so like yeah, this guy's whole thing is like you, you know, you guys know nothing. You are wandering around in the dark. You have no clue what this world is like. Let me kill someone on stage. Maybe that'll help you understand. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't help anything. I don't even know if the audience is real. <laughs> well, I think we should just, to to keep our feet grounded, we should just assume everything we see is real. Do you think they were trying to say something deep about the perception of reality? 
No, I don't think they're trying to do anything deep at all. No, you think it's just... Well, you don't think like the audience critique of uh, digging digging at an audience that wants to come see this kind of gore and violence on purpose, you don't think that's deep? No, I, I think that's possible, but I, I don't think the film would have started with that idea. Like, I don't think the film started because Herschel Gordon Lewis thought... I want to satirically poke fun at my audience. Like, I don't think he thought that. I think he thought, huh, how can I make, like, what could my new vehicle for gore be? What if it was a wizard? No, a magician. A magician who really saws women in half. Yeah, we could have some cool gore effects if we did that. That's how I think it would. It, it, his thought process went. If you haven't seen this film... It's basically gore magician act exposition, gore magician act exposition, gore magician act exposition, gore magician act end of the film. And the when we say gore exhibition act, it's more like there's 90% padding, like bad repetitive boring padding and then 10 percent gore and that, like, in like modern filmmaking it probably would have been reduced to like an 80s montage yeah <laughs> my, that's the whole film <laughs> my biggest problem with this movie is how repetitive it is it, it's almost you know i think herschel gordon lewis got his start making like softcore porn and that makes sense because that's the exact structure here right only instead of sex scenes, you have gore scenes and then you have very little plot stringing it together and the acting doesn't matter because that's not what anyone's watching anyway. And instead of the the money shot, you get the gore shot. That makes a lot of sense. I, I really think that's that's like what I think that's where this was coming from. All right. So uh, final thoughts. <laughs> you like I, I don't know where do we go from here um hang on there there are some things <laughs> i want to talk about <laughs> all right so one one thing i was curious about and it may not make sense to even question anything in this movie um but when he gets a volunteer from the audience they're like under his hypnotic control right and most of the time like I think I think they only volunteer because they they're being controlled. I'm not sure if the very first volunteer is controlled. I don't know cuz there's a scene at the end where Sherry it's Sherry, right? I hope so cuz that's what I was saying earlier. Okay, good. All right. So, um so there's a scene later where Sherry says to Jack, "When you were in the audience, didn't you feel a pull?" or a hypnotic pull, something like that, when he stared out into the audience and asked for volunteers. And Jack was like, yes, that's why I tried not to look into his eyes. And so I took that as saying he's trying to convince the audience, like, hypnotically to volunteer until he gets one. But, like, outside of the very first volunteer, every other volunteer is... The it's from a couple. It's always a couple. The boyfriend, husband, whatever is 
first hypnotized to stand up and basically pull his partner to attention. And then that is what gets her into like the hypnotizing beam, <laughs> like the gaze. Right. And then she goes up on stage. Exactly. Like yeah, I forgot about that scene where like the husband threw his wife out there. Oh, it's not just like the scene. It's every single volunteer after the first act. Well, second act. First act, he cuts him, beheads himself. Second act is the, the chainsaw in half. And then every other act after that. So, so they're at some point they become hypnotized. They come up on stage. They go through whatever the, the killing is. And then suddenly they look okay. But they're still they still look like they're in a hypnotized trance. Like they don't say anything. They just walk with unblinking eyes straight forward like a zombie, right? Probably because they're dead. Right, but what I'm getting at is wouldn't their partners, friends, husbands notice that like something was off? Um in the sixties? Like aren't men clue aren't men clueless? I don't know. I don't know if they Act could be this clueless. Right? I don't know. I would be worried if if I was in that situation and my wife or girlfriend volunteered for something and then afterwards wouldn't speak and seemed to be in a hypnotic trance. I would be concerned. I just found it odd. <laughs> and, and so what happens is as the night progresses after the show, at some point, they just die <laughs> from what was done to them on stage so you'll have the first victim who was chainsawed in half she goes to like an olive garden or some shit after the show and as soon as she gets a table after waiting like 40 minutes she falls in half bad luck so i i fully understand that there might not be an answer to this question <laughs> but <laughs> what do you think's going on do you think that there's something supernatural involving the death? Or do you think there's some sort of mass hypnosis to, to, to fool people into thinking they see them leave and go elsewhere? Like, what is going on here? Do you have any idea? So before we can even tackle that, we have to go into the final step, which is after the body is taken to, the, to a morgue, Montag shows up, steals the body, and uh, takes it to a red-tented graveyard where he shoves it inside a mausoleum. Yep. And that goes nowhere. That plot point goes nowhere. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't help answer my question. No, That's it doesn't. <laughs> but it has to be considered with all the other nonsense. If you're gonna talk about this, then you have to you have to put all the nonsense into one basket. All right, so walk me through the nonsense. What's uh, what do you think well, goes on? We, apparently, we don't even agree that the on the same point that the audience sees the gore. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm not I'm not in firm disagreement. I'm just uncertain. I like so I I think they see the gore, but then I also agree with your point that. If they actually saw the gore, why would they want this on television? Right. And more importantly, if this is an act that's based on hypnosis, potentially, that should, shouldn't should technically transfer over 
like television, should it? It does in this situation or some sort of magical control does. Right? Like either in the, in the final scenes, either everybody's hands literally start bleeding or everybody is hypnotized into hallucinating that their hands are bleeding one or the other, but either way, Montag is exerting some sort of magical control. There is some, I mean, there's, I'm just going to say there's something going on, but like, there's a lot of things going on when the first shit, is it the first victim? When the first victim is discovered, Sherry is on the scene and while they're transporting the body out to the hospital, uh, it brushes up against her hand and leaves like a blood residue that may or may not exist. Yeah. Constantly phases in and out. Yeah. That is our right. first, that is our first experience with blood, bloody hands. And then somehow that imagery was taken and expanded so that everybody has bloody hands at the end. I don't think there's a significance here. <laughs> no no i i really don't think so like okay i guess if you like want to really try to to like draw if you really want to force a connection if you really want to force a connection then you can say that everybody having blood on their hands somehow binds them together as if they were holding hands themselves as the victims are doing in the studio at the end of the film Right, but do you think they actually have blood on their hands, or do you think that they just hallucinate that they do? I mean, it's no no more... I don't know, man. I don't know. Because here's the thing, right? If If the audience isn't seeing the gore that's happening at the shows, they're definitely seeing it when the victims are actually dying after the shows. Yeah. But... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, as an example, that the scene where he's driving a spike into that one woman's head, you get alternating shots. So it'll be like a scene where he's actually pushing it through her head and like the brains are coming out the other side. And then it'll go to a scene where he just has like an inch of it in her head and he's kind of hammering it in, but there's no blood. And then it will go to a scene where it's not in her head at all. It's just barely touching and he's like moving it around in circles. And then it will go back to the the brain is coming out scene. So you you can't know which one is really happening and which one the audience thinks is happening and which one Montag thinks is happening. There's just no way to know. And if the audience isn't seeing the gore then what are they looking at? They're just looking at him tap a piece of metal against somebody's head lightly and then take and and then says, all right, thanks. Thank you. Applause. And and then the, the volunteer sits down. I think they see, I think they see the spike go into the head, but I don't think they see him like fondling the brains. No, like trying to pick the brain out of her long blonde hair. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they see that, but uh, it doesn't matter. We can we could debate this forever because I don't think is this a debate? No, but uh, we could (laughs) we could theoretically debate it. 
again, I think this this movie is just a vehicle to show off some special effects in five scenes and everything else is uh, can just be discarded. Yeah, we agree on that. We're we're treated to like this side story where Sherry works for a is it a news station, a television studio? She has like her own daytime talk show. But is she specifically a film critic though, right? Oh, I don't know. Maybe she is like an entertainment critic in general. And yeah, I think she's an, an entertainment critic. And so she went to the show to ridicule it and then came out like forever changed because this whole hypnotism gore not gore just totally blew her mind. So she gives it a glowing review on her show and then spends like the next three plot segments trying to convince this guy to come on her show and to demonstrate an act to do an interview. And so the movie comes to a head when he eventually agrees to come on the show. But every time this man runs a show, someone dies. Yep. The police are aware of this. They figure this out, that all of the volunteers are becoming murder victims. But they do absolutely nothing to stop this guy from going on the air. They just let it happen. And I'm not saying they need to believe all the like potential spiritual mumbo-jumbo bullshit, but like Sherry buys it sherry knows something's going on yet she still allows him airtime on television if, to, if to, to ply his craft i mean if we're being like the most charitable possible um then i think we would say that th their suspicion at least for the first like two thirds of the movie is that there's like a copycat killer that somebody is going to the shows, seeing how the, the volunteer is murdered on stage and then going out and committing a murder that just it looks just like it. So if that is the case. Like if that's what they believe, do they really have justification to, sh to shut him down and have him stop performing as a public safety issue? Yeah, sure. Cause there's clearly someone in the audience that's killing a person after every show. So you can get this person to shut their show down. So that at least at, the, at a minimum, people stop dying. Well, they were foolish enough to think that they could intervene by following the volunteers after the show. Um, but because this is magic or delusion or something, um, that doesn't help. I think at this point, they dropped the copycat killer and decided to to consider that there was just a partner who was working with montag who was just committing the murders after each show that was when they they started following but of course that doesn't matter because one that's not what's going on and two they were unable to stop the murders because they're already dead maybe Maybe there was a side plot that wasn't included where a police officer went to Montag and told him that he had to shut his shows down, but Montag hypnotically mind-controlled him and sent him on his way. This 
movie is like an hour and a half plus. We did not need that scene. Yeah, that's why it had to be cut. We don't need a lot of the scenes in this movie. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, this movie could have used like a like a karate kid montage of just Montag doing like gross gore shit to like seven different women in like four minutes and just get that all out of the way. Yeah, but you need your makeout time. Oh, that's right. I forget. I forget what this the, the real audience for this film. I'm watching this from like the the viewpoint of like a, a a lazy American in 2023 that lives in a reality where drive-ins are extinct, and I'm I'm not considering the proper framework <laughs> why this movie exists. I also think so. Movies had minimum lengths, and I I don't know like why that was or who originally started it, but I always imagined that. Part of the reasoning is that uh, a movie theater wants to ensure that people are in the theater for a certain amount of time because that maximizes the amount of concessions they can sell. Right. And it limits the number of separate movie prints they need to purchase. So that always made sense to me. Um, so back in, you know, especially the 70s and 80s with these really low budget filmmakers, if their movie was under the required length, they would just shoot nonsense, right? Like, I I think the best example is in Rock and Roll Nightmare, where the first 10 minutes of the movie is just people driving in a van, and it's just because the movie was 10 minutes short. But clearly, the only thing H.G. Lewis cares about is the gore scenes. But you need something to fill it out into a feature length and connect them and give the audience make out time or concession time. And so it's like perfectly structured for a drive in experience, I think. But that doesn't help us in the Lord's year 2023. No, uh, these I think Herschel Gordon Lewis movies are worth watching. I, I mean, I've seen most of them, so. Obviously, like I took the time to see them and I've seen some multiple times. Um, so I, I don't think they're I don't think they're worthless to view. Um, but I think you have to view them more as like a historical artifact or a record of a certain time in history because it, it, it's not going to be your normal kind of entertainment. What was your favorite woman murder scene? It feels so odd ranking such a thing. Right. Well, I'm not asking you to rank them. I'm just asking you to pick your favorite. Because they're not, none of them are especially well done. And as I said earlier, none of them are aesthetically beautiful like they would be in an Argento movie. Um, so, I, I kind of disagree. I think they're well done for the time. I think my favorite is, let's see, let's, let's list them. We have the, we have the woman who, gets her stomach pressed by the big hole punch. Uh-huh. We have the woman who, or the two women who uh, swallow the swords, mm -hmm. have the, the swords jammed down their throats. We have the woman who sawed in half. And what's the other one? I'm missing one. The pick to the skull. Oh, yeah, the pick to the skull. I think the pick to the skull looks the worst out of all of them. I think my favorite, the one that bothered me the most, even though it doesn't look good, 
and I think was the most effectively disturbing is the sword in the throat. I 100% agree. Yeah. Um, Because the sword looks really flimsy and everything, but regardless of how sturdy it looks, they are jamming something with some force into a poor woman's mouth as she's screaming. So, like, even though you know it's fake, it's still upsetting. The the scene swaps shots constantly, no doubt to hide the fact that they're using a plethora of different swords to uh, simulate the different stages of um, how deep it's going. But, you know, it's, it's a metal sword. It's supposed to be straight. There are parts where the victim's head uh becomes like upright <laughs> even though it's supposed to be a straight metal sword right um, that does kind of dull the illusion a little bit um but otherwise i i totally agree um as someone with a terrible gag reflex this this was the most painful one to watch one thing i wanted to mention that i thought was funny is when the the girl who's cut in half she's or no, it's the girl with the, her middle punched through, which someone says later fell in half. She was wearing a very distinctive outfit, like a cat suit with swirly 70s patterns on it. And she was wearing it when she died. She supposedly fell in half. But then when we see Montag carrying her body to his secret you know, crypt later on, She's in one piece and she's still wearing the same outfit. She wouldn't be right. She would be naked. Uh, depends on how far the medical examiners got after she was transported to the morgue. Yo, you okay. Role play time. You, you're the manager of a morgue. You're a morgue manager. Okay. Okay. You have a body stolen from your, from your morgue. You're very upset, you know, you buff up security, right? Yeah. Okay. So why didn't they do that? And why did they allow like three other bodies to get stolen? I, I wondered that as well. I'm <laughs> like, does this guy have no one he reports to? And after he's murdered, there's just no security at all. That's how it seems to work. And it's like law enforcement's aware the bodies are going missing because that's in that's inhibiting the the homicide investigation. Right. But they're like, yeah, yeah, the, the bodies keep going missing. Well, yeah, you're sending them to the same fucking morgue. <laughs> you would at least set up surveillance, I would think. <laughs> nope, not in this universe. And you know, you can just explain all the inconsistencies away with hypnotism. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know whether what you're seeing is a dream? We were asked that several times. So, yeah. like, is this, why is this movie real? Is the question I asked myself. Maybe we need to approach this the way we'd approach like a David Lynch film. It, if this movie was made like today for the first time ever, the end of the film, the actual end, would have probably been the halfway point, and it would just spiral into madness from there. Well, you want to talk about um, you want to talk about the very end. Sure. So the first thing you should know about the end is that 
the secret crypt where he's taking all these bodies never never comes back in the script. No. Ever. <laughs> but we do see we see Jack and Sherry. This is after like Montag has has had his face burned and presumably died. Oh God. All right. No, we we can't start. We can't start there. Okay. All right. Okay. Where do you want to start? We gotta start. All right. So the the movie comes to a head when Montag gets onto Sherry's show. He performs some sort of mass hypnosis to the not only the, the live studio audience, but to everybody watching at home. I like that um the police ahead of time had this all planned out. They were like, Sherry, you're gonna volunteer. You're gonna be the volunteer for the for the performance. And there's like a debate uh between her and her husband about whether she's gonna do it or not. And it's a whole big dramatic thing. And then it doesn't matter because Montag's plan is totally different. I don't even think they're married. Oh no, she says fiance a couple of times. Yeah. So the people on site they're stunned hypnotically stunned like the rest of the film like the people watching at home like if you're like me on the couch watching the wizard of gore in 2023 i was just stunned watching this film <laughs> and everyone at home uh within the universe of the movie who is tuning into this show is stunned in front of their television sets and inexplicably, we have the bleeding hands. Doesn't really mean anything. It's just there. Maybe they're bleeding. Maybe they're not. It could be some, was it some Hamlet shit? You know, that the blood is like guilt on their hands. They yeah, it doesn't seem, it, it doesn't seem like they're bleeding. It seems like it's on their skin. Like he just washes it off and then there's not a gash or anything there. It's not like stigmata. No. So then he starts to do the next the next part of his plan, which is uh makes a bunch of important people in the studio hold hands and uh walk over to the, the next part of the magic trick where he sets a pyre of uh wood pallets on fire with his mind. He just like you know makes it happen, does like actual Dungeons and Dragon wizardry just sets that shit on fire and he's about to instruct people to just leap into it. Well, uh, before like before he sets it on fire, I was already dumbfounded by this because I couldn't fathom the the network TV station allowing him to build a bonfire there like a, a stack of broken up wood. I just couldn't imagine <laughs> hypnotism. Oh, true. Yep. I forgot. You know, we haven't mentioned it, but like this this Montag guy has like two boring like goons in like brown jumpsuits that like set up all the shows. Mm-hmm. They put the wood there. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm just surprised they were allowed to. But right before he's about to give the hypnotic order to march into this bonfire... None other than Jack runs from off screen and shoves the wizard right into the fire. 
where he like immediately dies. (laughs) (laughs) It was a hot fire. Well, people get set on fire. They typically don't just die on the spot. (laughs) I mean, it's like a horrific death. (laughs) You don't just die. Oh, well, it was a very hot fire. It's magic fire. <laughs> yeah, this man immediately turned into a burning mannequin. <laughs> and that, of course, breaks the hypnosis. Everyone in the studio is free. Everyone at home is free. And uh, he gives the explanation that we talked about briefly earlier. How, man, this guy was has the creepy eyes. I just didn't want to look at the TV while he was up there. Yeah, and that's that's how he was able to avoid getting hit with the charm person spell. But let's get to what happens next, which is far more bewildering and interesting. <laughs> uh, you know what's crazy is I had a feeling something like that was going to happen, and I'm like, nah. And then it happened, and I got sad. <laughs> we. We see Jack and Sherry like sipping wine later and acting like everything, you know, is back to normal. But Sherry is asking all of these questions, like the same questions the audience has. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Like, and how- just like we, us, there's no answer. Yeah. She's like, how is this? How is any of this possible? <laughs> <laughs> And that's when Jack peels off his face, uh, Mission Impossible style, and it's Montag. (laughs) And he says, you fool, you've been living in one long dream, but now you're going to discover what the real world is. And then he attacks her and just starts ripping her skin off. (laughs) Yeah, And underneath her skin is just a bunch of disorganized sheep carcass organs <laughs> and no in no logical place yeah no particular order just just dumped in there just <laughs> and you notice in in Herschel Gordon Lewis movies you never see the gore just like sitting there someone always has their hands in it and is like moving it around and squeezing it it's maybe that's the kind of help draw attention away from how it's not anatomically correct yeah like I, I, when when he gets when the dude cuts his own head off in the beginning it's like where the esophagus should be where like the holes would be if you were to you know cut cut a head off and i'm not like saying this from is like you know uh if you've actually watched videos of people's heads getting cut off like if you've taken a biology class you know where the hole should be and they're they're not that that is pretty much a symptom of all of the gore scenes in this film and i don't know if that extends to his other works but it's definitely prevalent in this one but Sh- sherry with no skin uh holding her <laughs> nonsense tissues in <laughs> As if she's like trying to hold a shirt on, right? Yeah. Um, it starts laughing. Yeah, she laughs, and she God. hits him with the mix-up. She's like, "No, you're the fool, because you're the one that's not real." Yeah, Mont Montag is very 
um, offended. He's like, how dare you laugh? <laughs> she says, look at me now if you dare look into my eyes. And he says, what will I see there? And she has a pretty good line. She says, the past and the future. <laughs> Is Do that you a think- good line? I think so. She says, do you think you're the only one who deals in illusions? You are my illusion. You're not even really here. (laughs) Like, I wish they talked that way throughout the whole movie. It would have just added an extra dose of intrigue. What's really missing here is Montag going, no! (laughs) As he fades into nothingness, but... No, and we we actually morph or fade to him on stage saying I am Montag or Montag as if he as if he ultimately won or he survived. I don't know. I don't know what happened in this movie. Nobody knows what happened in this movie. The people who wrote and made this didn't didn't know. Even at the end it says the end dot 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 or the beginning. So, yeah, they didn't know. No, they didn't didn't know shit. (laughs) All right, let's wrap up here. Give final thoughts and a rating out of four. Um, I think all the nonsensical plot points are are just there to get people talking about the film. It's just, unfortunately, there's no substance behind it. Uh, There are some, some fleeting moments of cool imagery. Um, I don't know why I keep coming back to this, but I really wish the graveyard scenes had some sort of significance to the overall plot. We never know why he's stashing the bodies. Why is he bother taking them? I mean, that's that's rhetorical. I'm not expecting an answer. Um, I could because I have none. You know, nobody does. If you are a gore effects fetishist then you probably owe it to yourself to watch this film to see what they were doing in 1970. Because as we have both stated, this movie is five very detailed gore scenes mixed in with a bunch of nonsense. So if you're on, you're watching this on YouTube, you could just skip ahead until you see the wizard stage and then you're good to go. Just, just keep watching from there. Unfortunately, the only performance of this whole movie that's that's worth watching is Montag himself. Um, he fits the role, I, I think, pretty spot on as the absolutely pretentious, mysterious, uh, maybe human, maybe not wizard. Um, and he owns that old like children's magician imagery really well like i was a little bothered at first wondering how this was gonna like translate having like this kind of traditional stage magician act be like con converted into like a a a murderer but I think that actually it was one of the successful parts of the film. And I totally bought his character. The problem is that the rest of the script was unable to prop him up. And in a movie that poses so many different questions and phenomenon without 
any rhyme or reason it it just really deflates this this experience as a whole um and it doesn't help that all the story scenes all the exposition between the gore stuff is boring <laughs> it is very boring uh, we are getting close to like a hundred episodes here and uh, I think this was the only time I was tempted to fall asleep during a film. Just there's just not much going on. I'm I'm gonna give this film one and a half stars. More like Wizard of Boar. So I'm gonna disagree somewhat. I actually think the non-gore scenes are the the less boring part of the movie because the gore. I understand why it was shocking and revolutionary at the time, but it just it doesn't look good. I'm sorry, it doesn't. Um, it, it Romero Gore looks, uh, I think, amateurish as well, but it's a hundred times better than what you get in this movie, which is just like, yeah, a couple of rotting sheep carcasses with fingers mashing their organs together and it it just doesn't look good so the gore scenes to me become boring and i think that the sort of campy acting because all the acting is campy right it's not i wouldn't even say that that uh montag is well acted i think it's a campy performance and the two leads are they're pretty boring um, but I kind of liked the their interactions with the police and um, it, sort of the, I don't know, the Scooby-Noo nature of it almost. Like you've got this, the police coming together with these, these random young people and they're going to like solve the mystery together. I thought that was a little bit fun um, in a campy sort of way. So, it, but it, the movie's just, I understand um, in the context of history, like where Herschel Gordon Lewis fits in. And I understand that he has his, um, his admirers and his like diehard fans. Um, I think what he was doing, what he brought to film was cool. I just don't think he's a very good director. He's definitely not a good writer. Um, he, he doesn't, his, his scores are not particularly good. Um, his films are badly edited. Like, they're just not well made. And so it, it, and you might be able to get past that. Like early John Waters movies aren't particularly well made either, but the writing is so interesting and provocative and um, memorable that it like makes up for all those other ingredients. And and here you have nothing. Um, it's, it's only importance is that it's a footnote in the history of like gore effects and that's it so uh i agree one and a half stars all right so next week we are going to talk about uh, a very odd movie um if you've never seen it and i don't think a lot of people have you should definitely check it out it's called anguish from 1987 I believe in some countries it was called Eyes. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what you think about it, Leland. This will be the uh, third or fourth film about a guy obsessed with eyeballs, stealing eyeballs. 
This movie stars uh, Michael Lerner in one of his first ever performances. Do you know who he is? I do not. You've definitely seen him. He's a character actor. He's in tons and tons of movies. Like as soon as you start watching the movie, you'll be like, oh, that guy, but young. Um, he uh, he came to acting like late in life and he just died recently, like a couple of weeks ago. So um, this will be a good in memoriam, I suppose. I do feel like this film is going to be a greener pastures compared to uh, what we just covered. I mean, whether you like it or don't like it, and I honestly, after watching it the first time, I felt kind of ambivalent. I wasn't sure how I felt about it, um, but it's definitely unique and interesting. So I think it will yield good discussion, and it's definitely well acted. Michael Lerner is outstanding, and uh, Zelda Rubinstein from Poltergeist uh, fame is also outstanding. All right, so if you haven't checked it out, um, check out Anguish from 1987. Until then, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares. Leland, any last words? Thank you for your continued support. Beautiful. We will talk with you all soon about Anguish. Have a good one, everybody.